You are Locked On Reds, your daily Cincinnati Reds podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome into your daily source for the Cincinnati Reds throughout the offseason. This is the Locked On Reds podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Carr. What's up, Reds fans, and welcome into the Locked On Reds podcast. It's the second day of this brand new decade. Thank you so much for joining into today's podcast. Today, I'm going to talk about the reason why we are here, the reason why the Reds have to go all in with trades and free agent signings and all that stuff this offseason. Also, later on in the podcast, I want to touch on a subject that I've got. I got a brand new book that I'm enjoying, the Bill James Handbook. And he's got a really interesting stat that he's come up with in this book. There's quite a few, but I wanted to focus in on one today as I look forward to the season with this awesome new book that I've got. But first, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast on all the many podcasting platforms. Follow me on Twitter at Jeff Carr with three F's and follow the show at Locked On Reds. Also, save the Locked On Reds line number into your phone at 513-549-0159. So our first topic of the day is why the Reds are here. Why we as a fan base are here. We, we look back at this last decade, and the first part of it was nice. The first part of it was successful. There were playoff teams. Of course, they didn't get a playoff series win, but they made it to the postseason. We had a division championship. It was nice. Then came the dredge. Then came the final five years of the decade that were absolutely horrible, such that the Reds are considered one of the worst teams in Major League Baseball for this past decade. And that sucks because it started off so strong. 2020s, hopefully, we're, we're hoping, we're turning a corner here and we're going to create some continued success. But let me tell you what happened here. Baseball America came out with an article that was rating the uh, draft performance by each Major League franchise over the last 10 years. So the draft performance as a whole by each team during the 2010s. Cincinnati came ranked dead last. Every single Major League franchise had better draft performances during the 2010s. The Reds were worst. And now I'm not going to go through every single draft because that would just be mind-numbing. But let's take a look at the first-round picks. 2010, Yasmani Grandal. Pretty decent pick. They turned him into Matt Latos. Pretty good. They tried to sign him this offseason. He got paid by the White Sox, not by the Reds. But he is considered one of the best catchers in the major leagues. So a good pick. 2011, Robert Stevenson. Kinda, sorta showed something last year, but as a reliever, not as a starter, not as the guy that he was picked to be. They they got him out of high school, and I remember just a few years after drafting him, there were murmurs. Now, granted, they might have been sort of biased murmurs, but there were murmurs nonetheless. 
comparing Robert Stevenson to the Reds version of Steven Strasburg. Obviously, that didn't work out. Then 2012, Nick Travieso. He's no longer in baseball. 2012 as well, they got Jesse Winker, which he was picked out of high school, so that's nice. But it's now been, we're, we're going into year eight with Winker in the Reds organization. We're still not really sure what we've got with Jesse Winker. We, we think we know, but the picture's still a little fuzzy, still a little blurry. Got to get it into focus. It's kind of rough. I, I call that one a push. Not a bad pick, not a good pick. A push. We're still talking about him. The next pick, also a first-rounder in 2012, Jeff Galelich. Yeah, I don't, I don't know who that is either. Then in 2013, they picked Phil Irvin. As a first-rounder out of college, I would have hoped we had a little bit more from him at this point. He's great against left-handed pitchers, but he is part of a platoon for a reason. Also in 2013, Michael Lorenzen. I think it's safe to say we're really seeing a lot of fruit out of that one. That was a good pick. Pretty good pick. I understand they picked him as a pitcher. I think they hoped he'd be a starter. He's a reliever extraordinaire with a little bit of fielding tendencies. Decent bat, as we all know. 2014 first-round pick, Nick Howard. I don't think he's in baseball anymore either. At least he's he's not uh, doing anything for the Reds organization. Alex Blandino, also a first-round pick in 2014. To be honest with you, I don't know that we will see any more from him. I I don't know what we've got out of him that we can call good, so I hate to say this, but I think that was a bad pick. 2015, Tyler Stevenson. Sort of, kind of seen him take a big leap this past year, whether it be minors or fall league baseball. Who knows? Maybe this coming season we will see him in the majors. He was a high school pick, so that's that's understandable. It's the hardest thing is to rate a major league draft because you're not going to see these guys for at least a few years, and that's if they are just super good. Then we're moving on to 2016. That's when they picked Nick Senzel. That's when they picked the guy. Honestly, this is still a push, though. I think it's hard to rate Nick Senzel as a good pick right now because we've only seen one year out of him. Still a push. They also got Taylor Trammell in the first round of 2016. Turned him into Trevor Bauer. We'll see how that goes. Leaning toward good on that one. 2017, Hunter Green. Kind of tough on that one, too, because he's coming off of Tommy John. Don't know what we've got with him. 2017 as well in the first round, Jeter Downs. He was part of that big trade with the Dodgers last season. So I think they've gotten something out of him. He he never was a really highly rated prospect in the Reds organization. So maybe they got what they could. 2018, Jonathan India. Definitely still a push at this point. I wouldn't call it a bad pick. And then, of course, this last season, Nick Lodolo in the first round. All in all, we, when you look at these draft picks, and multiple ones of them are inconsequential to baseball, let alone the Reds, This is why we are where we are. This is why we have been screaming for urgency from the front office. We've finally gotten it over these last two years, but they've had to rebuild the team from outside the organization. The whole idea of 
a rebuild where you bring up a lot of young guys, see what the young guys have, hopefully build a team. The Reds didn't have a whole lot to draw from whenever they decided to do that. And that's why this rebuild has come to the point of this year where all of us are thinking in our minds like, boy, it's playoffs or bust, man. We are, we are getting to the point where it's just, ugh. I mean, I'm not to that point because I'm weird. I've already told you before, I'm not to that point. I mean, you know, I, I'm never going to give up on the Bengals. And if I don't give up on the Bengals, I'm most certainly never going to give up on the Reds. But that's beside the point. There's plenty of people that have said if they don't make this year, make a run this year, it's going to be hard-pressed for them to care about the Reds until they actually do make a run. It's, it's hard for me to fault them. It really is, because when you look back at that draft performance and the fact that Baseball America acknowledges that no other team in Major League Baseball was worse in the draft than the Reds, that's why we are where we are. That's why we are super excited every time they sign a mid-level free agent, let alone a big guy. Because they absolutely have to, to build a winner now. This is something that... We, we won't know for a few years, but they absolutely have to flip this narrative in a hurry. And I feel like they have at least restructured their leadership when it comes to development and all that stuff. So maybe we'll see some guys who at this moment look like bad picks turn into good picks. We'll see. And on the other end of the spectrum, they got to start drafting better in the 2020s. Which, that starts this year. So we'll see how that pans out. In just a moment, I want to touch on something I read in the Bill James Handbook that I found interesting. It's about a stat that most of us consider to be a dead stat now. But first... This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. Experience the empowering feeling of the Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Get $750 cash towards the lease of our 2024 NX350 all-wheel drive. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Call 1-800-USA-LEXUS for important lease cash offer and pricing details. Restrictions apply. Not all customers will qualify. Offer available in the Lexus Eastern area in April 1st, 2024. As I mentioned in the first half of the podcast, I just got a brand new book, got it as a late Christmas present, The Bill James Handbook for 2020. Absolutely loving this so far. And, you know, it's funny, I got a a reply on Twitter, kind of a joke. It's like, hey, it's like baseball reference, except slower, because it's a book. And that's kind of true, but also what one of the things that's in here, different things that are in here, are experimental statistics, or at least expanded statistics, that Bill James and and the people that work with him have brought up. There's lots of base running stuff in here. But the thing that I found interesting I want to talk about today is RBI percentages. Now, I know, we, I, I've been an advocate of this uh, in the past year, that I don't really care that much about RBIs. I feel like RBIs are not the kind of statistic you want to use to evaluate a hitter. It was great that Eugenio Suarez had over 100 RBIs this year. He was the only red to do so. But Bill James kind of expands on that. And he, you know, he writes, he he talks about, you know, I, I wasn't seeking to kill the RBI. I was seeking to revive it with these RBI percentage stats. And part of what he looked at was 
it's not as simple as a save or a blown save. He compares it to that. It's not as if a player had an RBI with a runner on base and didn't get the RBI, so that's equal as if he actually did get an RBI. He looked at it situationally, and, and he gave values. The only value, one whole point, for an RBI opportunity is a runner on third with less than two outs. So if you've got a guy on third with less than two outs, that's considered one point. And, you know, if you miss that, then it's one, it's negative one uh, in that category when it comes to RBI opportunities. Then 0.7 for a runner left on third base with two outs, or 0.7 for a runner left on second base in any situation. Then they also, he also expands and gives 0.4 for a runner left on first base and 0.1 for an out made with no one on base. So essentially, when a hitter has an opportunity to get a hit, he has an opportunity to get an RBI. And with that, if he misses that opportunity, then it adds up. It creates all of these uh, numbers, and then he divides however many RBIs that the player got by the total number of opportunities. So say there's a runner on third with one out, and there also happens to be a runner on second. You got second and third with one out. Guy comes up to bat, and he strikes out. That's 1.7 you know, opportunity points, or what have you that adds into the column. And then maybe later on in the game, he hits a solo home run. Well, that's all well and good. He got one RBI, but he also had a chance to drive in more runs earlier. So it is at least a little bit better at describing the inefficiencies in a hitter who is trying to knock in runs. And I looked at his statistics, you know, the RBI percentage, looking at different reds. The interesting thing was, and, and you know, it's it, part of it, he tries to make it so that with these percentages, it lines up if you don't have as many opportunities as somebody else, if you don't have as many at-bats as somebody else. The at-bats don't actually factor into the equation. The equation is simply RBIs divided by RBI opportunities, and you get your percentage. But the red to have the best RBI percentage was Aristides Aquino. He had 47 RBIs in 107.5 RBI opportunities. And obviously, you're going to get these different decimal points with the fact that most of the RBI opportunity points are like, you know, decimal points and stuff. So, Sorry, I, I've talked a lot of numbers here. <laughs> Hopefully you're still with me. But basically, on the RBI percentage front, Aquino, the best of the Reds batters, his RBI percentage was 437. And now he kind of compared the RBI percentage, at least number-wise, to on-base percentage. But he also mentioned that the stand, you know, the normal deviation, the standard deviation, was a bit different because it's rare for a hitter to have an on-base percentage above 400, it's not that rare to have an RBI percentage above 400. There was a decent number of guys that did. Here's the thing, though. There are a number of guys who have a less than 300 RBI 
percentage, which he mentions that the league average RBI percentage factors out to about 326. And actually, Tucker Barnhart had an RBI percentage of 328, so he's slightly above average in that department, if you can't believe it. Here's an interesting one, and I love him. I, I've defended him. In fact, I defended him just recently on a few a, a couple of podcasts ago. But Joey Votto, and some of you are going to love this because some of you love to hate on this man, and I don't know why, but Joey Votto had an RBI percentage of 271. Last season, he had 47 RBIs and 173.7 opportunities. It just kind of adds to the whole narrative of how bad a year Joey ended up with. We, we always talk about the low numbers and people say, well, RBIs and all this other stuff. He, he doesn't get enough opportunities. I, I w- I'm part of the chorus that says, well, he hits second now. They're not expecting him to get RBIs. Bill James figures out a way around that with these RBI opportunities. It's just based on who's on base whenever they come up. It's not based on their lineup order. It's it's based on what they are faced with. And so Joey had a decent number of chances with runners on advanced base paths, you know, if they're on second or third and maybe lower outs and all that other stuff. And he still didn't quite perform up to snuff. I like this stat, and I think he'll probably flesh it out a little bit more. I think this is the first appearance of it in his handbook. He kind of mentions that he had it on his website, but few people look at his website. So it wasn't widely known. But it's kind of a way, and he compares it, like I mentioned, to the save. It's kind of a way of saying, okay, well, the batter gets credit for the RBI. We need to figure out exactly how many RBIs he's giving up, how many RBIs he's leaving out there on the field, and how many runs his team could be scoring if he was more efficient with them. And just looking at you know, the percentages and the rankings that he had for last season. The number one RBI percentage guy, Nelson Cruz from Minnesota. He had a 486 RBI percentage. Like I mentioned, Aquino was number one for the Reds at 437. Not too far behind him, though, was our good friend A. Eugenio at 404. His 103 RBIs came in 255.2. RBI opportunities. And, you know, it's just something that I found really cool. I I hope I didn't lose you too much talking about all these numbers and different uh, abstract statistical thoughts and all this other stuff. But I I thought it was fun, you know, because one of the things that people who want to shun sabermetrics say is, well, sabermetricians have killed the RBI. And RBIs are still kind of fun. It's still kind of fun to have a guy on your team that has more than 100 RBIs and say, boy, he's a good hitter. I think there's a good way of getting RBIs back into the conversation. And Bill James is starting to scratch the surface with this RBI opportunity and RBI percentage thing. I don't know if I'm going to use it a whole lot when I'm talking about a player, but it's at least something worth considering, something fun to look at. And, you know, throughout the rest of the offseason, there's going to be different uh, categories from this book that I will be exploring. This was just the first one. 
Anyway, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Hopefully, like I said, hopefully I didn't lose you too much there. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to have, it's going to be part one of two. Just, you know, a little inside business there. Uh, Part one of two, an interview with Stephen Offenbaker. He's going to be on the show. We're just going to be talking about all things Reds offseason, what we thought of the Shogo Akiyama signing. A little bit of fun, a little bit of shenanigans too added in. Um, had a good time talking with Steve. So part one of two is going to be tomorrow with part two happening on Monday. And the reason for the weird two-part thing sandwiching over the weekend, I'm going down to Florida. So I'll be on the beach. I'll be enjoying Florida for the first couple of days of this year. I figure that's the best way to start a year, right? On the beach. Oh, man. Hey, that's just that's just my thought. I mean, if it can't be on the baseball field, I guess it might as well be on the beach, right? Anyway, whatever. Thanks for listening. Make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcasting platform you're listening to. Follow me on Twitter at Jeff Carr with three Fs and at Locked On Reds. Also, save that Locked On Reds line number into your phone at 513-549-0159. Like I said, listen tomorrow. Me and Steve talking Reds with you. My name is Jeff Carr, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.